Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the sixth Sunday of Easter, May 22nd, 2022, is preached by Pastor Steve Munfrom. If you have any questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning. Wonderful to have the opportunity to share the Word of God with you today, and the passage of Scripture that I'm going to be speaking on is Psalm 39. Uh, It's kind of a dark psalm, but in that respect, it serves to contrast very well with the wonderful light and glory of this Easter season. So if you would, please stand, and I will read Psalm 39 verses 1 through 13. The title in this uh, translation is The Vanity of Life. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him, surely every man is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for having such a psalm as this, such a song, be recorded in Holy Scripture for preserving it to us without error so that we might reflect upon it today uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit and uh, understand and believe what is important for our lives for now and for eternity. And in the midst of the briefness of our life, we pray, O God, that we can rejoice in the victory of our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. 
So I'm no great uh, expert or anything like that on Greek mythology. Uh, but in Greek mythology, there is a character, Narcissus. And Narcissus, the son of the river god Cephasus, in case you were wondering, right? Uh, Narcissus was uh, known, renowned for being beautiful and handsome. Just a fine-looking character of a man. And uh, he fell in love with his own reflection as he sat one day by the pond, by the pool of spring water, and is looking in at his reflection, and he fell in love with his own reflection. And uh, was so enraptured with his own reflection that he just sat there and sat there and sat there and sat there until he pined away and died. And uh, what grew up where Narcissus died was the flower that today we call the Narcissus flower. At least that's the Greek mythology version. And of course, uh, we get from that whole story, narcissism, uh, the infatuation with ourselves. And I'm not accusing anybody of, uh, on a psychological level here of being a narcissist, but I think uh, many of us, maybe most of us, spend uh, probably far too much time and energy thinking about ourselves. It is so easy to think about ourselves, to think about you know, what our future is or what we look like, or um, especially in times of trouble and like we might be experiencing now economic, uh, economic situations, to wonder how will I care for myself or how will I pay my bills. Or I remember um, reading one time a work by C.S. Lewis. He was writing about grief. And he said one of the things that was hardest for him about the time of grieving after someone he loved very much had died was uh, how much time he spent thinking about himself. You know, he couldn't help but thinking about how this death impacted him and feeling sorry for himself. He said that he, that was what he didn't want to do. He didn't want to become just taken over by thoughts of himself. And grief can do that. And maybe that's part of what uh, the author of our psalm, King David, was experiencing. In, in the psalm, David is talking about a time when he was especially aware of himself. And there's some, some positive aspects of it and some negative ones that we want to observe today as we think, think about this. Uh, that event, and we don't have a record in the psalm anyway of what that might have been when he was thinking about himself, uh, kind of shows up in the psalm in a couple of different ways. In the first section of the psalm, which we're going to come back to later, uh, his, his thoughts about uh, of sharing this. Uh, but, but the thing we're going to look at first is where he actually speaks of this difficult time. And he does so in terms of God's discipline. He sees himself as the subject, as the one who needs to be disciplined, reproved by God. And we see that uh, down in the Psalms in verse 10 and 11 and into verse 12 and 13. At the end, he talks about this. And it's a, certainly a reality, right? We can uh, go through our Bibles and we can find other 
uh, people or groups besides uh, David that suffered, or maybe suffered isn't necessarily the best word, experienced the discipline of God. Adam and Eve, right? Uh, they lost their innocence in their disobedience to God, and immediately repercussions showed up in their lives. Uh, the curses, the expulsion from the garden, uh, and so on. Job in the Bible, and Job is kind of a difficult one to know exactly why he suffered. He maintains that he had committed no sin that would, uh, that would explain his suffering. And yet others say that there is. And uh, Job rests, of course, in his Savior, in his Redeemer who lives. Or we can think of the whole nation of Israel. Certainly Israel, many times, because of their sin, experienced direct consequences. We might call it discipline or reproof. And then there's David, who wrote this psalm and his, his um, lustful actions toward his neighbor, Bathsheba, his uh, complicit uh, plan to murder his neighbors, his neighbor Uriah, and the national shame that came upon his uh, monarchy and the whole nation. So there's many examples, aren't there, in the Bible of individuals who suffer and who are disciplined by God. God does discipline his children. He disciplines his people because he loves us. Uh, we can recall and must recall here Proverbs 3.12, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, and he disciplines even as a father corrects the son that he loves. And then the author of Hebrews takes up that verse and, and expounds upon it and explains to us that the significance of God's discipline is that it is a mark of God's love for us and of our belonging to him. And the point that the author of Hebrews makes is you can't discipline somebody else's kids. The only kids you can discipline are your own. And that's absolutely true with God, right? He disciplines his own. And he disciplines us because we are his own. And because that's how he shows forth that he loves us and cares for us is by his acts of discipline. So we think about this idea of discipline. What might come to mind, of course, um, many of us have, well, all of us have experience with discipline um, at, when we were kids, right? Or being parents or teachers or even babysitters, whatever situation you might be in where discipline comes to be. We see some of the different words that are used for it in the text here. Chastening in verse 11, at least in my translation, it says, with reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity, to admonish or to correct. Uh, I think it is important for us to recognize that there is a difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment aims at... Um, at inflicting a hardship based upon what has happened in the past. Discipline, I think, is more future-oriented. We discipline our children because we want them to turn out 
to be good citizens and good neighbors and uh, good, just generally good people in life, right? So, so discipline is more forward-looking and punishment is more backward-looking. But both are unpleasant, and that's one of the points, of course, that's made by the author of Hebrews. No discipline is, seems for the moment to be pleasant. It's a hardship. It often involves for us learning to die to um, wrong behavior, to ungodly habits, uh, learning not to love the things that our sinful hearts by nature love. Our sinful hearts just set their love foolishly upon things that are, un, uh, that are not righteous, that are not helpful, that are not loving, and learning to turn your back on those things can be very unpleasant. And certainly discipline, just thinking generally about discipline, is in no way excluded by forgiveness. Uh, uh, an act that is wrong can be 100% forgiven, and still a discipline for it must be applied. We see that in the, just in the way that things work in the world. Uh, though we may certainly forgive our kids, as an example, for some damage that they did at home, we still expect them to make it, make it right, to, to pay for it or to do something to make it right. And so discipline exists even, in the, even where forgiveness is applied, and that is certainly true with God. God disciplines us even, even when he forgives. So in the case here of David, we know that his sins were uh, already mentioned. Uh, adultery, lust, murder, rebellion against God. And he experienced as a result of that, death of a child, that, was, that scripture shows us is directly related to his sin. Strife in his family. Uh, his son Absalom rebels against him in his kingship. Difficulties with his daughter. National disgrace, future, uh, poor judgments. All of these things constitute a discipline from God. Examples that we might experience, that we might see going on in our world. Fines and imprisonment. You know, certainly people who... Uh, who sin under certain circumstances will face those kinds of very public disciplines. There's lost and damaged reputation. There might be poor health, broken relationships, inner conflict, inner turmoil. All of these are characteristics of discipline that God rightly shows to his people because he loves us. Some of the ways that God's discipline is described in this passage of Scripture are super interesting, aren't they? Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 10, your plague, that's what it says in my Bible, remove your plague from me, like a plague. Or in 11, with reproofs, to reprove. Now, you know, I don't, I don't like reproof. Do you, anybody like reproof? You like being told you're wrong? And, and, and you can be told you're wrong just verbally, you know, you were wrong. But sometimes we're told we're wrong by 
by circumstances. You know, the circumstances make it evident that we acted in a, in a wrong manner. And, and uh, sometimes we feel like, you know, everybody knows I made this wrong choice and now this, this, this things just aren't working and my failure is evident. And then also in verse 11, the discipline of God is described this way. You consume as a moth what is precious to a person. Think of, think of how moth gets into uh, maybe, maybe a, um, a bride's wedding gown. You know, you save your wedding gown and you put it in a special place and you think you're going to preserve it for years and later you take it out and there's a hole here and a, and a damage from moths over there. And it's not like the whole thing is gone, but the shine, the, the beauty of it is lost. The appeal to hold on to it and, and uh, value it. The moths are just, just nasty in that way. And one other phrase here about God's discipline from verse 13, where the psalmist prays, turn your gaze away from me. This is, this is such a part of God's discipline, isn't it? It is this awareness that God is watching. That God sees this holy, utterly perfect God sees all. And uh, it's not comfortable, is it? To be under the gaze of the holy, all-seeing God. As again the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.13, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And, and that's the inner turmoil of discipline. Well, you think about this discipline then that David is experiencing, and we'll go back to the beginning of the psalm and pick up this kind of odd things that he says here at the beginning. He says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. So uh, he, he doesn't feel free to just, to just call God to account for this. Doesn't necessarily even feel free to assert any kind of innocence. He says he's careful not to sin with his tongue. Of course, he could sin with his tongue by blaming God. And, and the other side of blaming God is to defend himself, self-defense. And he says he's not going to do that. He's not going to criticize God or complain and murmur. It's, that's something that we are certainly likely to do, aren't we, in the midst of discipline, to complain and murmur about it. And we know that Israel did that in the desert. In the wilderness, they complained and they murmured and suffered, suffered some terrible plagues because of their complaining. Not going to sin with his tongue in blasphemy, to speak against God. And he says, especially in front of believers. So what does he do? He says, I can't, I cannot speak against God. I don't want to sin with my tongue, so I'll just, I'll just hold it in. Well, that works good, doesn't it? You just hold it in. Well, look at how he describes holding it in. My heart was hot within me. 
while, while I was musing, the fire burned. But it didn't work to hold it in either. So, so, so here's the situation. Here's, here's David, and he's going through this very difficult situation that's part of God's working in his life. And he doesn't want to speak ill of God or complain or murmur, and, and especially in front of unbelievers, and bring any kind of shame or dishonor to the name of God. He can't hold it in because then he burns inside. What's a guy to do? Well, he has one option that comes out very clearly. Finally, what does he do? He does what we all need to do and need to learn to do. He prays. He talks to God. And I don't know why it is, but, but it just seems that so often we get the idea that we can't be honest with God. That we can't tell God what, what we're honestly feeling and honestly thinking. And yet we find wonderful examples of it in Scripture. I think of Jeremiah and others who in the midst of the hardship of their Christian lives, went to God and just laid it all out, just, just unloaded on God. And that's exactly what David does. He comes before God and he prays, Lord, let me know, let me know what's going on in my life. And that's the really the center and the focus of this wonderful psalm. Lord, he prays, kind of, kind of not maybe the prayer we would expect, but he prays in verse, Lord, in verse 4, Lord, make me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. He goes on from there and, and uh, just speaks to God about the difficulties of his life. That's one of the most gracious gifts that God ever gives to his people is, is the freedom to come before him and to be 100% honest about whatever you think, whatever, you, whatever you're struggling with, whatever hurts, whatever doubts there are. Um, do, do, we think, do we think that God doesn't already know that? That can't be right, can it? He already knows. Do, do we think that we might hurt his feelings? Well, um, I suppose it's possible, except that when it comes to hurting God's feelings, we have already hit the 100% mark, right? We've already hurt him completely by our sin. So, so that's really not an issue. Come. Come to the Savior. Come to the loving God. With whatever hurts and pains, even if, even if you think God's responsible, and, and, and talk to him. And rely on his mercy. And expect his grace. And, and, and know, of course, who you are. And that's very clear in the text. 
These, these phrases that David uses about himself are really phenomenal. He, he says, I know, show me, God, how, how nothing I am. Let me know how temporary my life is. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths. You know, short a distance as, as normally measured, a handbreadth. He talks about, surely every man walks about as a phantom, a ghost, just barely there. And then he uses this phrase that, uh, in verse 11, surely every man is a mere breath of vapor. You know what it is, on the, on the cool mornings, it wasn't quite cold enough this morning to see your breath in the air, but it was close. And, and the, you see your breath in the air, and there it is, and then it's gone. And it's amazing that he says that. Because even if you are Israel's greatest king, you know, that was David, Israel's greatest king, the liberator of that of, of the people and the and the and the father of the dynasty, kind of. The house of David, even Israel's greatest king, and all that he accomplished. Still his life is a vapor. Still his life is a vapor. Every man at his best is a vapor. And that's how we think about ourselves when we see things rightly. Life is short, and God is merciful. And the real goal of God's discipline, then, is, uh, or one of the results of God's discipline, is to know ourselves, to know the shortness of our life and our need for him, and to keep our whole existence in perspective with God. And then, then to see where David just powerfully goes with this knowledge. Although he himself is a vapor and a phantom, his life nothing but a handbreadth, he states so clearly, yet my hope is in you. Verse 7, now Lord, my hope is in you. And he expresses his hope in this wonderful prayers that he states to God. Look at the, look at the requests that he makes. Verse 8. Deliver me from my transgressions. Certainly that includes forgiveness, but probably more than just forgiveness. It includes uh, Faithfulness to his word. Faithfulness to his commands. And what we might think of in terms of sanctification. That we are delivered from transgression both by forgiveness and by a holy life. And he prays, deliver me from my transgressions. In verse 10 he prays, remove your plague from me. His hope is in, is in God and so he calls upon God. To bring an end to this time of discipline and to remove the plague, the hardship. In verse 12, he prays, Hear my prayer. 
Even the prayer of a vapor is heard by Almighty God. Even when we are as nothing in his sight, yet he hears our prayers. And then verse 13, he requests, turn your gaze away. Free me from that sense of living continually under the gaze of the holy God. And in all of, thing, all of these things, he is seeking to live in the glory and in the grace of Christ's resurrection of his Savior Jesus. And think of how, how different the risen Christ is from the vapor that is David. David, here a moment and then gone. Christ, living, eternal, resurrected, and victorious. Was Jesus simply the best of men? By no means. He is, he is not just man at his best. He is the living Son of God, the resurrected Savior. There's nothing shadowy, nothing vaporish. Is that a word? Vapor-like? Not a phantom or ghostly about Christ in his resurrection, glorious and full of life, victorious, alive, the conqueror of sin and of Satan. And that is where he lets his hope rest. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. The vapor that believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. These are the promises that God gives to us through our crucified and risen Jesus Christ that is present for us and with us today in his word and in his resurrection promises. As, as did David, so must we hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to review the testimony of this great Christian man, by no means free of sin, but full of faith and confidence in his Savior. And we pray, God, that even as we are, have opportunity in life to recognize how brief, short, vapor-like is our life and our existence. So also in you, we are promised forgiveness of sins, fellowship with the living God, and eternal life. God, we rejoice in our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.